Welcome to Looking Deeper, the podcast for the preaching ministry of Berean Baptist Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. My name is Marcus Little, and I'm the senior pastor of that congregation. We are of the conviction that the people of God, the Spirit of God, and the Word of God are enough to bring about the purposes of God for our lives and for the world. Because of that, we view preaching not as a one-way activity, but as a conversation. Please feel free to join us in that conversation by emailing me at marcus at bereangr.org or through our Facebook page, or better yet, by visiting us in person sometime for our Sunday services. We meet at 10.30 a.m. at the corner of Coit and Sweet in Northeast Grand Rapids. For now, I trust that God's Spirit will speak to God's people through this part of God's Word. So I said earlier that Advent is the season of waiting. And I don't know about you, but when you hear the word waiting, it probably doesn't conjure up joyous and happy and lighthearted feelings. I don't know anyone that says, I love waiting. I love being made to wait for things. I think one of the reasons that I love Advent is because it's a very specific countdown. 24 days or four Sundays, depending on when you start the clock. For us, it starts on Thanksgiving. That's when the Christmas season starts. But you know, December 25th is coming. And so there's an anticipation that builds up because you know exactly when the moment is going to arrive that you have been waiting for. But in other aspects, whether it's waiting rooms at the doctor's offices, waiting in line at airports, or other places where we are made to wait, it's very rarely something that we think of as a good thing as a thing of delight, as a, oh, I'm glad that I'm being made to wait. And yet, as the people of God, waiting is one of the most frequent postures that we find ourselves and we find our spiritual ancestors in. Every year during the season of Advent, we turn our attention to one of the four Gospels, and then we go to that same Gospel during the season of Lent, the season of observance leading up to Easter. This year, our gospel is Mark, and we've spent time in Mark's gospel in a previous year, going through in order through all 16 chapters. Uh, And one of the reasons I love that we come back to the gospels over and over in the course of our 12-year plan of legend, uh, this is the only part of the scriptures that we revisit uh, the gospels because Jesus is worth our attention. And so every year we come back to a gospel, but it also affords me the opportunity to spend time in a focused section of that gospel. Since we've already gone through it in its entirety, we get to focus our attention. So for the next several weeks of Advent, we're going to be focusing our attention just on the first few verses of Mark's gospel. And then during Lent, we'll turn our attention to the passion narrative in Mark's telling. But I've titled this series, Beginning Again. And the reason for that is because that's how Mark begins his gospel. He begins it with the word beginning. And it speaks to what we as the people of God are always about. We are about new beginnings. We are constantly looking to God to bring about a new beginning in our lives, in the lives of his people, in the work of redemption. And so Mark reminds us of that in the very opening of the gospel. And so we're going to look this morning just at the first three verses, and we're going to start with this very first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As I said, this is a bit uncharacteristic for me. You're used to me taking large chunks of scripture. We're just taking three verses, and there's a lot in these three verses. And so I want to start just with a few of the 
words in this first verse, in this opening verse of Mark. Mark is a very compact gospel. It's the shortest of the four gospels, and it's unique in a lot of respects, and we'll be getting into some of those over the coming weeks. But Mark begins with this word, the beginning. And what's interesting about that is, is several things, but one of them is also thinking about how Mark ends his gospel, which is that Mark doesn't really end his gospel. His gospel ends abruptly and very open-endedly, something that we'll get to when we cover the ending of Mark's gospel during Lent. But I think Mark wants us to understand that his whole gospel is just the beginning. It is something that is starting and that we are continuing. This is what I think a lot of the New Testament authors are wanting us to see, that Jesus began to do the work of bringing God's kingdom into the world, and that work is yet to be completed. But Mark, in using the word beginning, also brings our attention back to the beginning of the story, what John does in his gospel, in the beginning, taking us back to Genesis, in the beginning, God was at work. And so Mark wants to connect his gospel, his telling of Jesus' story, back all the way to the very beginning, but also wants to indicate that there is a new beginning that Jesus introduces. This is the start of something, but it's also a continuation. So the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark says that it is the beginning of the gospel. This is one of those words that if you've been around followers of Jesus for any length of time, you hear and we we use it and we don't think very much about what is meant by this. It's literally the word for good news. It would be better for us to use the word good news than gospel, but even good news has a lot of baggage and assumed meaning to it. Following this verse, Mark is going to quote from a couple of different prophets, including Isaiah. And the word gospel, the word good news here, harkens back to what Isaiah said was his message. What Dave alluded to earlier from Isaiah chapter 9, and especially from the last half of the book of Isaiah, which if you were with us in the spring, you recall we spent some time in, that in the midst of exile, in the midst of defeat, in the midst of national catastrophe, the prophet brings good news, brings a gospel of peace and justice that God was going to bring about. And I think Mark is hearkening back to that to say that Jesus is the one who is bringing that good news to its fullest fulfillment. It's the beginning of this good news. But that was also a word, we think of it as a uniquely Jesus word. That the gospel and Jesus are fully overlapping. But this was a word that was common in the ancient world. And it was for any ruler who was establishing their rule. That was heralded as good news. Now, whether or not people who were coming under the rule of a particular king or emperor, received it as good news is quite another story. But the king always said, this is good news that I'm taking over and establishing my rule and reign over you. And especially the Roman emperors heralded the good news when Rome arrived to take over a place. And when Jesus comes onto the scene, Rome had just 60 years earlier taken over the kingdom of Judea, had established their rule and reign over Jerusalem and the people of Israel. And they had said that this was good news. And so when Mark says that Jesus is good news, it might also stand as a direct challenge to every emperor and every king and every ruler on the scene that Jesus intended to establish a rule of peace and justice that would indeed be good 
news. It's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark here uses the term Christ. It's a Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Mashiach, Messiah, the anointed one, the one chosen to bring about God's purposes. And here Mark introduces another theme. When we looked at the book of Isaiah a few months ago, we saw that several different people were anointed, were chosen by God to carry out God's work. But the most common one was the people of Israel themselves. They were God's anointed ones. From the very beginning, they were to be a kingdom of priests to establish God's rule and reign of justice and peace on the earth. They were anointed. And here Mark says that Jesus is the anointed one. David and his ancestors were to be the anointed ones to carry out God's purposes for the people of Israel. We saw that even Cyrus, the Persian emperor, was an anointed one by God to bring the people back from exile and to commission the building of a temple, a sanctuary space. And Mark says this Jesus, this son of a carpenter and a peasant girl from Galilee, is going to be the anointed one, the one commissioned to bring about the good news of God's rule and reign. And then finally, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We just wrapped up our series in First Chronicles where we saw that David receives this promise that his son, Solomon, who will sit on his throne and who will build the temple, will have a unique relationship with God. God says, I will be to Solomon a father and he will be to me a son. And that relationship is focused on the idea that Solomon will not be inheriting the throne of his father, David, merely a human king, but he will be inheriting God's kingdom. In other words, God wants the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom ruled by Solomon, to be God's own kingdom. This was always the purpose for Israel, to establish God's rule and reign of peace and justice and blessing for all the nations. But of course, we know that at every stage of the way, as God intended for this good news, these anointed ones, these ones that God desired to treat as his very own family, at every stage that they were invited into that work, they failed. At every stage at which they were invited to be part of God's plan to bring blessing to creation, which has been God's plan from the beginning. That's why that term, the beginning, is so important. How we start the story matters a great deal. I've said over and over, the story begins not with failure and judgment and condemnation. The story begins with God lavishly creating a universe to be inhabited by his image bearers in order to bless them. That is the beginning. And from the beginning, God has been working to bring that about. And at every stage that we've been invited in, we have tended to stray. We have failed to carry out what it is that God would have us to be and to do. And so Mark says, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one the Son of God. And again, this term, we think of Son of God, and immediately in our context, we think of Jesus. But to Mark's audience, there was another claimant to that title of Son of God, and it was the Roman emperor who claimed to be the representative of the gods, who claimed to be carrying out the work of the gods and establishing justice and peace on the earth. 
A lot of the language that attends to Jesus' announcement of the kingdom mimics that of the Roman emperors. That's one of the things that lands him in so much trouble is it can be easily accused that he is a traitor to Rome. Even though he never broke a single one of Rome's laws, that's the argument that can be made. Listen to what he's saying. He's claiming to be the son of God, equal with the emperor. So in that one verse, Mark introduces us into this broader story that goes back to the beginning of creation and carries us forward, suggesting that we who read this are standing in the line of the work that God has been engaged in from the beginning. He calls to our attention David and Solomon and the nation of Israel. He brings to mind Isaiah just by that word good news and the announcement of the prophets that something better was coming. And having invoked the prophets subtly through these terms, Mark then goes on to say this, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Mark here quotes not just Isaiah, he actually quotes three different passages from the Old Testament. And the first one, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. That quote is one that Mark includes, and the other gospel writers, when they quote this passage, which all of them do, to introduce the character of John the baptizer, Mark's the only one who who introduces the quote with this quotation. It comes both from Exodus and from Malachi, towards the beginning of Israel's story and the very last of the prophets that speak to Israel, saying, behold, I send my messenger before your face. The Hebrew and Greek words for messenger and angel are the same word. An angel is a spiritual or divine messenger, but it can be used of a human being. And in Exodus, God is saying to Moses and the people of Israel, as you go through this wilderness and you go to the land of Canaan, the land of promise, I'm sending my messenger before you. And my messenger will clear the way for you so that you'll be able to enter the land of promise and rest without challenge or difficulty. It's a promise that God is doing the work of preparation ahead of the people. And so then Malachi echoes this statement and says that when God brings about the second exodus, the restoration of the people of Israel in their land through the Messiah, that once again there will be a messenger, an angel that will go ahead of God's servant. But it calls to mind a specific context context of exile. The people of Israel begin their story in a land of slavery and oppression and are led on a journey out of that place and into the place of rest and peace that God had promised in the land of Canaan. In Malachi's day, they were living under the oppression of foreign empires, Babylon and Persia. Malachi says a day is coming when God will send his servant to establish his rule, and before that, he will send a messenger to prepare the way. This is a repeated theme in Israel's history. And then comes the quote from Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I want to call attention to one phrase 
in this verse, and that is in the wilderness. This stood out to me, the wilderness. That it's in the wilderness that this messenger does their work, that this angel does their duty. It is in the wilderness that the people are told to prepare the way for the Lord. And like how we feel about waiting, I'm going to venture a guess that none of us hear wilderness and say, that's where I want to go on vacation. That's where the destination of choice is for me. Sign me up for the wilderness excursion. Unless we are Bear grills, this is not something that we voluntarily choose to enter into with delight and joy and enthusiasm. We think of the wilderness and we think of a place of lack, a place of deprivation, We think of a place of being lost, like the only reason you get into a wilderness is because you're hopelessly lost and you're trying to get back to civilization, back to comfort. We think of the wilderness as a place we desperately want to get out of, not a place we want to linger in. And I think it is significant that Mark quotes Isaiah and that Isaiah indicates that it is in the wilderness that the messenger of God does their work. Because I think in Scripture we see that the wilderness is actually a place that the people of God need to get accustomed to finding themselves in. I want to suggest to you this morning that we are in a moment that could be a wilderness moment. Collectively as a church, more broadly as a society, perhaps as humanity. We are in a wilderness moment. I want to talk about what wilderness means. And as I've thought about this, this is something that has been significant for me over the last couple of years. I've reflected on my own life and my own journey and have identified for myself at least three very clear seasons in my life that I would call wilderness moments. So moments that for me, naturally speaking, I would want to hurry to get out of. Moments that I would look at and say, this is not a pleasant time. This is not a time that I'm delighting in or finding myself drawn to. And yet they are seasons in which I believe God has done some of the most profound work in my heart and life. And I think that is what is instructive for us is that God brings us into wilderness moments individually and collectively as God's people for specific reasons. There are things that happen in the wilderness that cannot happen in Egypt or Canaan or Babylon or Rome. There are things that God can do in the wilderness if we will let him. And for me, those three seasons, the first is when I came back from Romania at the end of high school and was preparing to start college. That was a wilderness moment in that I felt a little lost. I had learned how to relate to God in the context of the Romanian church and the missionary community that we were part of, and the church community in Southern California felt very different, and I felt adrift. I expressed it as saying, I don't know where God is in this new context. Where am I? Who am I? And that was a prolonged season where I felt adrift, I felt distant, I felt disconnected. But as I look back, that was a formational time in my life. The second is when Kelsey was pregnant with the twins. That news set aside certain plans 
all of a sudden what had felt like a straight line journey in my vocation, as I graduated seminary and anticipated the next step in what God had for me, took a sharp right turn, a zigzag. And it was a season where I did not know where I was going. Don't get me wrong, the twins are a delight and joy. They are not a wilderness, but that season introduced for me all kinds of uncertainty. And then the third one was the season that brought us here to Grand Rapids. It was a prolonged season of wondering at first whether I was in any way qualified for anything other than teaching middle school history and science. As we talked with a variety of churches over distance and over months, and took steps of faith. It was an eight-month season where we did not know what was next, and we did not see the provision that God would provide. And again, it was a profound and formational time in our lives. So there are four things I want to share with us about what wildernesses are like. First of all, the wilderness is a place of provision. We think of the wilderness as a place of lack, We think of the wilderness as a place where there just isn't enough. But think about the wildernesses in Israel's history. Certainly the 40-year wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. But also think of Elijah and Elisha, both of whom spend time in the wilderness, Elijah in particular. And think about the consistent theme that God provides just enough in the wilderness. You see, Egypt and Babylon and Canaan, they are places where there's leeks and garlic and onions and all kinds of good things. Canaan is a land of milk and honey. There's an abundance. There's more than enough. But the wilderness is not a place of lack. It is a place of provision. It is a place where God provides just enough. And as I look back at the three wildernesses of my life, in each of them there was a question of provision. Will we have enough? And I felt acutely that there was not enough. And yet, when I look back, particularly at the season where we were looking at coming here, a big factor was the cost of living in Southern California and private Christian school salary and three kids. And I look back and I say, how did we survive? And it's not, I don't have this story of the miracle, you know, check showing up in the mailbox. I know you're supposed to have one of those stories as a pastor. I don't have that story. God used ordinary means, our families, the support of friends. And we always had enough. We have always had enough. I think one of the things the wilderness does is it adjusts our definition of enough. It adjusts our definition of what we need to be more in line with what Jesus taught us to ask for in the first place, which is our daily bread, not our yearly bread. The wilderness is a place of provision. Secondly, the wilderness is a place of purpose. This speaks to this idea of feeling lost, but there is always a purpose. When God has the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years, when he has Elijah in the wilderness for 40 days, It is to reorient the people to what their purpose is. It is to reorient the people to what their purpose is. And so the people of Israel receive the law so that they will understand they are to be a kingdom of priests. 
to bring glory to God. Elijah is reminded that his responsibility is not to establish some sort of large-scale movement, but to bear faithful witness that God is the one who is sovereign over the kings and rulers of the world. Elijah had believed that his role was to do something large and spectacular, and so he's discouraged when his showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel doesn't result in national revival. But he goes to the wilderness, nourished by food that God provides. Interestingly, God provides food, and then it says, in the strength of that food, Elijah went for 40 days. It was enough not just for that day, it was enough for 40 days. And I imagine Elijah might have gotten to day 25 and said, a snack would be nice. Would a protein bar be too much to ask? But God says, no, the strength of the food I provided was enough for your journey. And it's at Mount Sinai after that journey that Elijah is reminded who God is and who he is and what is expected of him, which is nothing more than to bear faithful witness to who God is. The wilderness is a place of purpose. It reminds us who we are. If we will slow down, and this is, I think, the genius of the wilderness, is it gets us alone. It gets us away from the things that easily distract us from who we are and who God is. We can see more clearly in the wilderness once we get over our grumbling. And oh, by the way, grumbling is the first response of the people of God to being in the wilderness. So whenever I grumble, and I was saying this to someone this week, whenever I grumble, and I do frequently, I have learned to ask myself, what am I upset about? What is it that's bothering me? And usually it's because something has been taken away or I feel something's about to be taken away. And then that's an invitation to say, did I really need that? What is it that God would have me to understand in this particular moment? It's a place of purpose. And that purpose is our third thing about the wilderness. The wilderness is a place of preparation. This, I think, is the hardest thing for us to understand about wildernesses is we feel like they will never end, or we feel like it's our responsibility to get ourselves out of them, to figure a way out of the wilderness. But you see, God is doing something in us in the wilderness. God is preparing us for whatever is next, and this is the good news. God is not a sadist. God does not put us in the wilderness because it amuses him to put us through trials. That's a, there's a, a version of our theology that suggests that that's the case, that somehow our God is a God who delights in suffering and does this because it somehow pleases him on its own. But God's intention is never to leave us in the wilderness. Our grumbling tends to suggest that that's exactly what God is like. Do you bring us into this wilderness to die here? Of course not. I brought you into this wilderness so that you would realize what was toxic about Egypt and Babylon and Rome and so that I could bring you into the land of promise. My heart and desire is to bless you with milk and honey and peace and justice and rest, but you cannot take hold of those things while clinging to the gods of Egypt and Babylon and Rome. You have to let go of them. The wilderness is the place where you do that. It is a place of preparation. It is a preparation for what is next. At the end of the wilderness is always the Jordan River. And the Jordan River is what the people cross to enter into God's blessing. And so in the stories that we're going to be looking at in Mark's gospel in this opening chapter, Jesus is going to go through his own wilderness. 
He's going to enter the Jordan River and he's going to begin to do the work for which he was prepared and for which John prepared the people. So we're going to be exploring these themes more and more. But finally and most importantly, the wilderness is a place of presence. We think of the wilderness as a place of loneliness and isolation. This is less the case when we think about the people of Israel, two and a half million of them. I don't think loneliness was a problem. Getting on each other's nerves probably was, and latrine issues probably compounded the problem. But I reflected on Elijah's experience in the wilderness. Elijah is all alone in the wilderness, he thinks. And he says so to God, I am alone. I am the only one. And it's as though God says to Elijah, oh, really? Then who are you talking to? It's an important question. The wilderness is the place where God is present. This is the thing that stands out to me about the Israelites' experience in the wilderness is the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. They were never anywhere but exactly where God was, and there's no other place we should desire to be. Because if we are in the presence of God, we have everything that we need, full provision. We understand our purpose perfectly. It's to be with God. And we will be prepared for wherever God leads us, because as soon as the pillar moves, we move. Vision will be clear enough. Next week, we're going to hear from Tim Gombas, who's written a commentary on Mark's gospel. And his central idea is that this gospel was written not to convince people who didn't believe in Jesus to follow him, but was rather written to churches who thought they had Jesus figured out and forgot what Jesus was really about. A church that was in or needed to be in a wilderness. And I think that is a timely invitation for us. Think about all of the things that have been stripped away from us over the last almost two years. All the things that we might be prone, I might be prone to grieve, lament, mourn, or otherwise grumble about. How might we need to embrace this wilderness and not be in too much of a hurry to get out of it in order that we might receive God's provision and understand God's purpose and be prepared to be fully in the presence of God and to minister the presence of God to those around us? I think there is an invitation for the church, for our church, for me, in this season of Advent to embrace the wilderness in which we might find ourselves. So I invite you to join me in that. I invite you to consider what this season in a wilderness might be God's very blessing to us and how we might embrace it. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you are the God who provides, who leads, and who guides. The God who is in the wilderness with us in order to bring us to a place of blessing and peace. And so we ask that you would be with us. We ask that you would give us clarity to see and to be with you in this season. We ask it because of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. 
I pray you were blessed by what you heard. We hope you'll join us again next week, whether on this podcast, via our live stream, or in person. Until then, watch for our bonus episodes with reflections on this message and a preview of next week's message that drop throughout the week. Until then, may the God who loves us beyond our ability to think or imagine bless you, keep you, be gracious to you, look upon you with favor, and give you peace.